dear listeners and followers of the Bulletin Podcast. My name is Rafael Robiati, and on behalf of all the editors of our blog and our podcast, I would like to bring you one important information. In times of social distancing with the outbreak of the coronavirus COVID-19, we all have been staying home, studying, working, and practicing social distancing to protect ourselves and our loved ones. As you know, this period doesn't come without its challenges. We have been working on alternative solutions to bring you our podcast as usual, but of course we are recording the episode from home and we don't have access to our fancy studio with our equipment, so some technical issues and difficulties might arise. So we count on your patience, please stay with us and we hope you enjoy this next episode. Thank you, stay home and stay safe. the bulletin podcast for the Willy Brandt School of Public Policy at the University of Erfurt. I am your host, Eva Serrano, and my goal is to interview the fascinating students and researchers in the Brandt School and hear experiences and voices from all over the world. Currently, in the midst of the confinement that we're all facing due to the coronavirus disease COVID-19 outbreak, staying home and practicing physical distancing is one of the best actions that we can do to stay healthy and safe. However, physical distancing does not mean social distancing. Therefore, here at the Willy Brandt School, our minds are still open in these challenging times, analyzing the impact of the current pandemic on the field of public policy. It is my pleasure to introduce our guest today, Professor Solvi Richter, in this digital encounter to talk about the effect and significance of COVID-19 on the field of conflict management. Professor Richter joined the Willy Brandt School in 2013 as the Junior Professor for International Conflict Management. Her focus lies on external democracy promotion and post-conflict and transition just societies, the role of international organizations, and the effectiveness of the instruments of civil crisis and conflict management. Welcome, Professor. Yeah, hello. Once hello. And hello, all the others who are listening. I'm very happy to participate and to join. Mm-hmm. Analyzing the effects and consequences of the current pandemic, what are your impressions regarding the outbreak of the coronavirus on the conflict field? I mean, first of all, a few words maybe also personally, because I was um, quite surprised about the fast and the impact it had on on the political scene, on the, on the global scene. So um, I guess it's something none of us has seen so far. Um, I have seen, to be honest, the one of major changes in world politics, um, the fall of the Berlin Wall when I was relatively young, which brought major changes. Um, let's see if this is comparable um, with the impact it has, but to me it was like realizing, so the first week was like being shocked about all the events that are happening and about what's going on, and the second week was accepting how it is, the third week was adapting to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, with regard to the conflict field, to be honest, I mean, my heart is a is one of a researcher. <laughs> so I'm always curious. And it is an extremely interesting time as well, to say so. I mean, I'm... Um, on the one hand, I'm suffering as well because I see how many fragile peace processes are on the brink of collapse, how vulnerable people are suffering, 
how all the things that you know were these yeah. small steps are currently not implemented anymore. Um, that that's also sad news for me personally. But on the other hand, it's really a field lab for research. So it is really interesting to see how this COVID-19 or coronavirus impacts um, on the global or on the local level both. So what effect does the current pandemic have in existing conflicts? Um, that's a super interesting question, actually, um, because what we see is that some of the conflicts get de-escalated um, or we see at least some attempts at ceasefires. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, we also see some de-escalation, some increases of clashes, some um, intensification. And to mm -hmm. kind of bring a bit of pattern into it, it's interesting and a challenge. So my first take on it, we, I mean, it's really at the beginning of analyzing the things and to see how things are working. So um, what's interesting is that we kind of see a negotiation between in, in some conflicts, like for example, Afghanistan or in other areas where um, governments are trying to negotiate with armed groups or armed groups are trying to negotiate with the governments and ceasefire to protect populations and to protect fighters. Um, because we know that this virus does not stop for one group or the other, right? Mm -hmm. Those who are I would say who want to increase their legitimacy as legitimate political actor, be it state governments in crisis zones or be it armed organizations, they try at least to put measures into place to protect the citizens under their control, the population under their control. That's why we see in some areas indeed negotiations cease fires. But I think these are only short-term evolutions or short-term developments. Um, why? Because it increases the legitimacy of non-legitimate groups, right? Of non-state yeah. armed actors who fight by by the means of violence against um, states or yeah. Um, so, so we'll see. This is no step to peaceful kind of resolution of conflict. It's a step to ceasefire, to negative peace, but not okay. necessarily an improvement. In, of long-term perspectives of peace in these countries or areas better. At the same time, we see um, beyond or in the shadow of the media attention on COVID-19, we do see that um, clashes increase, terrorist attacks increase in Africa, for example, by Boko Haram. Mm -hmm. We also see that on the local level where territories are contested or where claims are contested, where, vested, where, where criminal groups have, have vested interests in um, organized crimes, for example, we do see an increase in the shadow of media attention, in the shadow of attention by monitors, international monitors and in general. And this, this is, of course, very, very problematic for the vulnerable population. Um, one case, for example, um, what I can tell from, from Colombia, is that um, since also whole Colombia is under a, a curfew and people are not, are not allowed to go out, this puts especially human rights defenders at the local level and those who work for peace, so peace defenders, um, social leaders, human rights defenders at a very special risk uh, because armed groups, um, illegal armed groups are attacking them now um, at an increased level, which is also a clear impact of um, COVID-19. 
So it's a double kind of picture at the moment. Some okay. positive elements, yes. But um, I guess in the long term, the perspective is more of um, an increase in conflict scenarios or an, in, yeah, put it like that. That leads you to our next question, which is, can coronavirus be politicized or used as a tool within a populist strategy by extreme right-wing forces, for example, to strengthen their position? I mean, um, the COVID-19 for sure is a perfect instrument to in enforce policies or to use political tools which have been used or which we have, will not be able to use beforehand by populists, by autocrats or everybody. I mean, I was super surprised, to be honest, um, even here in Germany, how many people applauded the, um, well, at the beginning, authoritarian behavior of some politicians, restrictions over all over the place, curfews. I mean, these are instruments of a security policy. So what we have seen is a process of securitization everywhere. Um, we see that um, states of emergency are called into place. And this has not, not necessarily something to do with a health policy, but it has to do with a security policy. And then mm -hmm. tools of security policies or tools of security uh, policy are used um, to cope with a health crisis is very problematic <laughs> because it creates past dependencies, right? So who controls the curfew? Who controls the state of the state of emergency? These are not necessarily health uh, workers. This then is the police and the military. And we have seen in cases, for example, reports from Kenya, from Peru, or from other countries where security forces are extremely strict in their response to those who are not respecting the curfews. But this is because of the health crisis, right? So don't forget, we have a virus, mm -hmm. <laughs> not a military invading other countries, something like that. Exactly. So this uh, securitization um, is one element. The other element, which we already see, which is also in the long term very problematic, is the process of ethnopolitical, how to say, ethnopolitical politicization, stigmatization. Uh, we do see that in some of some countries, for example, India, but also in, in, in some other countries, the question who brought the virus, who fights the virus, is an ethnic one. And so it gets an ethnic dimension into it. And we see a widespread, in many countries, how these um, <clears throat> decreasing levels of tolerance, how minorities, um, be Chinese minorities in some countries, in others the African minorities, even the Europeans were affected by that um, stigmatization, um, widespread ethnic um, intolerance. Um, and this is a tool which is used, of course, by populists, right? And by also, um, yeah, especially by populists to increase the support for their own kind of population and their own policies at the cost of other ethnicities. And this will have long-term effect. I mean, we have seen and we know from literature on ethnic conflicts that once you kind of um, call the devil, 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you will not be able to 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 get it back into this into the box, or I mean, you will not be able to control these um, sentiments since it has a lot lots of stuff to do with identity politics, and this is very hard to control in the mid to the long term. The effects of this stigmatization and ethnic ethnic politicization. Okay, and can coronavirus be used as a weapon in a warfare scenario? Um, well, it's not new. I mean, bioterrorism is not a new topic. Um, just because we now have the pandemic uh, scenarios on um, how to spread the um, bioterrorist weapons are, n- are nothing new. I mean, there's a long discussion. We already have some conventions in place. Hopefully, these conventions will now get a new impetus and a new kind of initiative to be enforced again and to be better implemented. But for sure, if I would be a terrorist, I would be surprised how the world reacted now and what impact it can have on everything, on the media, on the restrictions of um, civil civil rights, political rights, everything. Just so um, for sure, it creates a blueprint. It's um, it's interesting, and but hopefully also a positive dynamic a push for more control of um yeah bioweapons a apc weapons in general hopefully okay so experts highlight how unprepared the developed world has been to face this crisis especially the health sector what are your impressions on the impact on the developing countries um what we can already say is that this COVID-19 is especially problematic for vulnerable people. I mean, we are privileged, to be honest, right? I can talk with you, Eva, from our working place back home. You can study back home. I can work here on my home desk. And I even have a roof terrace, can go out and get some sun, right? Most of the population in developing countries, be it day workers, be it immigrants, internally displaced persons, don't have these possibilities, right? So they are extremely vulnerable to both the effects of the virus in a direct sense, so to get the virus, to get sick, but also vulnerable to the effects of our human behavior and of state responses to it, restrictions, right? So, um, and I guess these are the most problematic effects. What I can say already in, or I can already see in the developing countries, in conflict countries, that um, we are not able to protect and to help the most vulnerable population, and they will most probably suffer more from the consequences of state responses to cope with COVID-19, um, as we, for example, already seen in India, um, but also in, in, in all the other countries, your home country, Venezuela, for example, or in, in yeah, large-scale um, displaced um, persons, refugees on the border to the EU, all these will completely be unprotected. They don't have instruments to um, enforce um, hygienic measures um, to wash your hands or any other stuff. So I guess it will increase the distance between those favorable or those privileged and the non-privileged vulnerable population. And it will lead definitely to further inequalities. Yeah, unfortunately. So we have seen the ceasefire. You you talked about the ceasefire by some groups 
in the middle of the pandemic so that populations can access, can have access to medical assistance. What therefore are the opportunities for peace building present, presented by the COVID-19? I mean, again, from a researcher point of view, it is super interesting in a field lab because what we see at the moment is non-state armed groups Mm -hmm. Some of them enforcing even stricter measures than some governments, and it clears the field. To be honest, you see now very clearly where the government has control and where not, where other armed, armed actors are now in control or not. You see where territory or control over population is contested and where not, because armed groups are, they need legitimacy. So um, for them, it is they. Most of them, they have also political goals, or they have um, definitely the goal to, um, to win the hearts and minds of the population. And how are they doing that? By um, at least pretending that they are in the interest of, they act in the interest of control of COVID-19 um, and um, the health situation of the population. Most of the parts they can't do. I mean, rebel groups just simply can't provide um, huge-scale hospitals on a large scale, it's, still, it's simply not possible, but they can implement curfews, they can or enforce, enforce curfews and all stuff like that. And what we see um, in many countries that these um, rebel groups are actually behaving like governments, like small-scale governments. And that is, I wouldn't call it really a chance to be to say so, but it is an opportunity to start negotiating with these groups. Mm -hmm. To start like um, um, maybe accepting them the way they are. I mean, in research, there are there there is like a dichotomy of opinions on how to deal with armed groups. And either you give them legitimacy and you start right from the beginning negotiating with them, which leads to ceasefires or can lead to ceasefires, or you ignore them. What has happened, for example, in Afghanistan with the Taliban? So that they. they um, the U.S. and all the other governments did not recognize them as a legitimate political actor to negotiate um, with them. That's happening now. So that might be a chance um, that we bring these kind of actors back to the negotiating table that governments have to recognize. They have to negotiate with armed groups to find solution for, for the population for um, bringing peace, and that's one of the most important um, elements in it. I guess that's, that's, that's a chance I see, <laughs> put it like that. Yeah. One of the uh, things that uh, are happening with the COVID-19 is the scarcity mentality. We already have seen tons of videos of people fighting to get some goods, especially in, in developing countries, that there is scarce at the moment. So. What kind of policies could be implemented to avoid this? Well, <laughs> reduce scarcity, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's the simplest policy we can have uh, because yeah. it's a human behavior, of course, if you need to protect yeah. yourself, if you need food. Um, um, conflicts about resources or the literature on conflicts about resources tell us two things. First of all, um, Scarcity leads to more competition about resources, um, but it's not necessarily the scarcity that matters, but the distribution of it. So, for example, restrict more who has access to what. Um, I'm, I mean, maybe the richest one don't need um, tons of, of, of protection measures, 
Mm -hmm. like home, um, so we need to kind of distribute them to the poorer ones. But that's a political topic, right? So that's mm -hmm. how to distribute um, resources in this health situation is, again, a political decision, um, whom to protect and whom to, um, yeah, whom to give resources, um, not only for health protection, but as well um, food or any other, any other stuff like that. Okay. So to get over the COVID-19, we will have to strengthen our sense of community, right? So we need more than ever to take now our decisions just not based on our desires or preferences, but based on what is best for all as a community. So do you think that this mindset could prevail after the COVID-19 outbreak and somehow leads to less violence, for example? And which lessons or changes do you think that the coronavirus will bring to the future? I mean, first of all, it's yeah that 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 would be super nice and really good if we keep this um, yeah the spirit of solidarity, but also this the spirit of supporting the other who might feel weak, who might feel feel mentally weak, physically weak, and to support each other much more. Um, I think not only here in terms of the conflict countries or the developing world, but especially here in the developed world who is mostly driven still by a neoliberal perspective of um, I have to get stronger and um, only my performance matters for getting forward or for getting some positions. But this element of solidarity and this element of supporting others becomes a little bit more important in our social interactions. I hope, I really hope that we will keep that. Um, on the other hand, regarding levels of violence, I mean, it's not, it is a, it is, it's a wrong perception that violence is just something anarchic out there in the world, right? It's not that we just fight each other and, 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 and kill each other. No, there are political organizations behind it who are organizing this violence, right? <laughs> who are providing weapons, who are uh, mobilizing people and who in the end, soldiers killing citizens or civilians, and it, you know, this is not. I mean, we these cases where we see these anarchic levels of violence are very rare in the world. To be honest, most of the violence happening in the world is because we see either political goals behind, resource conflicts behind, and we see that organized armed groups or organized criminal groups. Criminal groups don't have political goals necessarily, but they are organized, are enforcing these levels of violence, and unfortunately. Here, I I cannot really see how this COVID-19 levels of um, solidarity will reduce the attempt at violence from these kind of groups. Um, what we see and what studies show us that vulnerable populations who are suffering from violence are more prone to social to pro-social behavior afterwards. Right? We have seen that in many conflict areas those who suffered from violence or those who are still suffering violence or extreme cases of conflict, brutality, that they show more pro-social behavior. And if we identify this crisis also as a traumatic situation for all of us, yes, it might lead to pro-social behavior among all of us, not only here in the developed world, but in, as well in the developing world. What else would stay? Um, I hope that um, this level of digitalization 
um, that came now up with a speed, but demanded for years and years, was not able to implement in some of the administrations, in some, I don't know, all over our life um, is a positive effect of it. So we can already see that it is working. Yes, we can stay together um, and have virtual guest lectures or electronic signatures or stuff like that, and it is working. Um, so that will hopefully also stay. And on a much more global, on a much more global stay, I mean, the economy will be totally different after this COVID-19. I'm not an expert, I'm not an economist, and I, I, I hope and I guess you will have interviews with more skilled people at Brown School in that area. But it might be um, the chance to revise a little bit the global world order in terms of its neoliberal approach, right? So does it always need to be the cheapest product we need to buy? Or is it not better to buy the best product or the locally produced product? Um, all these small elements, that's now the chance, right? So never waste a crisis to get rid of the bad elements of our global economy, of all our um, behavior, um, lead to more pro-social behavior. So that's at least, at least not a bleak outlook, but a hopeful and optimistic outlook. One last message with the students. I mean, all of us who are political scientists or economists or whatever now feel a little bit, how to say, in light of all these expert health experts, epidemiologists, we do think that our qualities don't matter at the moment in our skills. Um, that might be right. We are not able to analyze the, the spread of the virus. But what we are able, all of us, is to analyze the impact it has on the situation of human rights defenders, on the on the response of governments, and it will be us, political scientists, sociologists, economists, who will have to say a lot about how to respond to that and how to go back to normal life and to keep the political, civil rights, human rights in place and to fight for the good ones in the world after the health crisis is over. So I guess it's uh, our skills will be important in a few months as well. Professor Richter, thank you so much again for joining us today. Well, I hope to see all of you soon. <laughs> Good. Bye-bye, Eva. Thank you.